So how are you guys doing out there? You good? Um, I have to apologize in advance. Anybody else like under the weather? Anybody else? I don't know what it is, but it's, I've got something. So bear with me today. Um, if my voice cracks like a seventh grade boy, don't laugh. No, that's okay. You can laugh. You can laugh. That's, that's worthy of, of, of laughing. So um, we've been in a series um, the last several weeks, really, called Life Upside Down. And now we're transitioning. We're staying in the same passages. We're going to go now to Matthew 8 through 10, and we're now calling this Life Inside Out. So that'll be the next several weeks. In Matthew 5 through 7, where we've been the last few weeks, we have seen uh, Christ's authoritative message. And so now we're going to move into a section in Matthew 8 through 10 where we see his authoritative power displayed in several different really interesting stories um, that we'll see in the coming weeks where Jesus interacts with some people that the society would kind of frown upon him interacting with. So imagine if Jesus just said a lot of good things and that was it. Like imagine if all the Gospels were was just Jesus saying some good stuff, some thought-provoking things, and that was it. And there was no miracles, nothing extraordinary, nothing supernatural. So um, we don't see that. We see in the, in the Bible, we see that Jesus doesn't just, he doesn't just speak authoritatively, but he does things to show his authority, like with power and real examples. So we're going to look at several stories where Jesus interacts with certain people and performs miracles and he doesn't just change their external circumstances, but he changes them from the inside out. You see how they have great faith, these people that he interacts with. Have you ever given thought to the fact that miracles Jesus performed, they weren't just tricks, right? He doesn't just go around. Like, how many of you guys love watching, um, do, do y'all watch illusionist shows at all? Like, who's the most popular? There was a trend a few years back of, like, several different people that were pretty popular on on TV, but who's like the most popular illusionist that you can think of? Can you think, what's that? Okay, Chris Angel, I was thinking of, that's a little bit old school, but is anyone, is anyone new? Are there any new people out there? Is that the most recent, most well-known one? What's that? I have not heard, so that's the, that's the one I don't know about. So, but you, but most of these tricks these people will do are just a little bit random, like they'll it's just, hey, watch me do this really cool trick to show that I can trick your mind and deceive your mind. And um, this is not the way that Jesus did miracles. His miracles weren't random. It wasn't just, hey, guys, you see that Pharisee? I can make him levitate. Watch this. You know, like, that's not what it was. That's not how he did miracles. His miracles had a spiritual point, all of them. So you see where he feeds the 5,000, and then a few verses later he's saying, he feeds the 5,000 with all his bread, all the bread left over. And then what does he say? He says, I'm the bread of life. So the miracle was to point something bigger, which was himself. Um, whenever he heals people of blindness, he's often doing it to point out the spiritual blindness of the religious elite, that they can't see that he's the Messiah. So his, his miracles were sermons in action. And they were, pointing to, they were pointing to something greater than the miracle itself. And so today we're going to talk about the authority of Jesus. Now, I know many of you are at the age where you hear the word authority. 
and you just cringe on the inside because you have people in your life, these authority figures, whether they be parents, coaches, teachers, and they have an authority in your life. And when you hear that word authority, I know that many of you just, you instantly just cringe because you know what that means. And you don't always trust it. You don't always trust the authorities that God's placed in your life. And I think of my own kids. And my own kids, um, it's very interesting when you kind of age through with your kids and you're the parent of, we're now the parent of a 12-year-old and a 9-year-old. And when they, they understand this idea of authority, well, at least they, we try to teach them what that looks like. But um, when, when I say something or when my wife says something to my kids, and then she goes to work, and now I'm home with the kids. And the kids say things to me like, well, mom said that we can fill in the blank. And I'm like, well, I didn't hear her say that. And you're home with me right now. And so I am the authority right now. So my kids will appeal to this authority like, well, mom said. And so that means we get to fill in the blank. And I'll say, well, listen, I didn't hear her say that. We haven't discussed that. Like, I'm not just going to, like, th- that's not the card you can just play whenever you want to do something. Well, mom said we could. Well, she's at work right now. We can't really ask her that question, right? Or if I say something that we're going to do later, and then something changes, like maybe one of them got in trouble, and now we're not going to do that thing, whatever that thing is, and they will say to me, Dad, but, but you said, but you said, because they know that my words carry this authority, and so they're appealing to my authority and what I previously said to trump what I'm saying right now, to which I just say, but I'm the authority, and so I can change my mind. That's how that works. So my kids play this authority game with me all the time, and they like to call out my hypocrisy or my perceived hypocrisy when they feel like my words are not matching my actions, So with Jesus, his words and his actions always match up. And we're going to see this in these coming stories. So look with me at Matthew chapter 7. We'll start in verse 28, 29. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. So after Jesus preaches the Sermon on the Mount, It says the crowds are astonished, means they're surprised. They're just blown away at what he's said to them. So they recognize that he's not like other teachers. He's got this divine authority about him. And notice that they have, the crowd has a response. So there's this big crowd there, and they have a response. They're astonished. But that doesn't mean they repented. So somebody can be astonished, but not be repentant. And this is what I have seen in uh, many years of high school and and junior high ministry that we can have Sunday mornings, we can have Wednesday nights, we can have events, we can have impact, we can have mission trips. I've seen a lot of students react or have a response to something, but it might not be repentance. They might be astonished by something, but not have true repentance. And that's what this crowd is experiencing. So we often do the same thing. We often react but don't repent. And you see, it's not enough to say with our mouths that Jesus is God and that he has authority. 
But do we submit to that authority? Do we submit to that authority in our hearts? And do we surrender to that reality? Does he have real authority in your life? If someone carries real authority in your life, then there's going to be this desire for obedience and following after Jesus with our everyday lives. We've been saying this one statement almost every week. Jesus doesn't just want crowds. He wants disciples. He wants followers. And that's what he was talking about in his Sermon on the Mount. And you're going to see that things begin to separate in the coming passages where the true followers of Jesus begin to step forward and the ones that are not kind of fall by the wayside. Let's look at Matthew chapter 8, verse 1. When he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go and show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. Now, I know most of you have heard about leprosy in the Bible. So what was leprosy? Well, there's a lot of different discussions about that. Um, It's definitely a skin condition, a very serious skin condition. Some might refer to that in the modern terms as something called Hansen's disease, which this would be a really grotesque and disfiguring, disforming kind of an illness for someone to have. So no matter what it, was, what it was referring to back then, it was a very serious illness to have for someone. And it was an awful disease. And so if someone had this, they were told in the law, they were to tear their clothes. They were to let their hair hang loose so that it would be an, an outward sign that they were not clean. They had to walk around saying the words unclean, 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 so that nobody would get near them. And, get, and catch that disease. They had to live outside the camp. They had to live all alone. So not only were they isolated just emotionally because they had this disease, but physically they had to be isolated because they were one of the people getting the disease. They had to quarantine them from other people. So if you touch someone with leprosy, they had certain requirements for you in the Mosaic Law. And it's amazing that this man walked straight up to Jesus And even more, that Jesus reaches out and touches him. This completely defied um, what would normally happen in that day. So why does the man ask this particular question? He asks the question, he says, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. Or he makes a statement. And Jesus says, I will be clean. So why doesn't he say, just heal me, please? Why does he say, if you will? So how he approaches Jesus, I think, shows a great faith in Jesus. He doesn't demand healing, but he acknowledges two things. He acknowledges the authority of Jesus to heal, but also Christ's willingness to do so. He's saying, I know you have the power and authority to heal, but you also have the authority to say no. You know what that shows? That shows amazing faith this man has. You know, when you think about illness that you have in your family, maybe even in your own life, it is right and good to pray for healing 
with any kind of illness that you're experiencing or a family member. But it also shows great faith when you acknowledge to God, like, God, I know you have the power to heal. But I also understand that you might not choose to in the way that I want. That's a great faith prayer. You're not showing lack of faith by leaving his will in his hands. But you're praying in faith that he would heal. But you're also saying, I also recognize that you're, because of your authority to heal, you also have the authority to say no and not heal in the way that I want you to heal. I think about um, Pastor Gary, who passed away a couple of months ago. And of course, all of us, Gary, his family, all of us are praying fervently for God to bring a miraculous healing. But do you know what? Do you know what? If, even if God healed him from cancer, do you know that eventually he would still pass away eventually from maybe something else? Do you realize that if you and I get healed from the present circumstance, there is still something that's going to take us and, and take us to glory, some other kind of illness or some other kind of disease? And so this man comes to Jesus in faith saying, God, I want you to heal me. I want you to heal me, Jesus, but even if you choose not to, I'm putting my will in your hands. Then Jesus says something strange. So Jesus does this miracle, and then he says, don't tell anyone. Now, what in the world is he saying not to tell anyone for? You see, before this man could reenter society, they had laws about going to the priest. And so the miracles, the miracles confirmed Christ's authority, and they announced the arrival of, the arrival of his kingdom. But Jesus doesn't want people coming from all over just for a miracle, just to see a trick. So in that time, there were some in the crowd that would only be interested in the miracles. And, you know, Jesus coming as a political, political messiah, taking out the Romans. And so Jesus is more interested in repentance. So he says to the man, no, don't go tell anybody about this. You know, go and show yourself to the priest. And so I think we see a parallel here in our lives where many of us want Jesus to fix something in our life but we don't want him to fix our biggest issue, which is our sin problem. We want him to fix our relationships, things happening in our life that aren't going so well, but we don't really want repentance. And so I think you and I have a way of, of coming to Jesus and, and not really submitting ourselves to his full authority in the way that this man is submitting himself to the full authority of Jesus. So what is this, what can we learn from this story? What's it really about? What's really about the gospel? I told you before that every miracle Jesus does, you can see some spiritual meaning in it, some profound truth in it. So this story is not just about a leper, leper getting healed. You and I are to come to Jesus just like this leper. We are to come to Jesus spiritually, in humility, recognizing our real need. And watch what happens. Jesus touches this man, this unclean man, you and I are unclean because of sin. We need the, the impact of Jesus, the miraculous touch of Jesus on our hearts to heal us from our sin, what really is wrong with us. And so this whole miracle is a picture of the gospel itself. And so Jesus makes him clean physically in the same way that Jesus makes you and I righteous before God in spite of our sin. Look at verse 5. 
When he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, saying, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word, and my servant will be healed. So do you see the parallel in these two stories and how they're very similar? A Roman officer comes to Jesus, and this is a really big deal because a centurion would lead around 100 men in their military. The U.S. Army equivalent of that would be a captain, someone who leads around 60 to 200 men in the U.S. military. Now, the Romans were the occupying force in Israel, and the Jews hated the Romans, and the Romans also hated the Jews. It was a happy two-way street between those two. And everyone hated everybody. And yet this man, the Jews were seen as second class by the Romans. And yet this, this soldier, this man's man, this fighter, this leader of men, humbles himself and comes to Jesus asking for help from Jesus. It was rare that a soldier, a Roman soldier, would ever treat the conquered people with dignity and respect. And yet this man goes out of his way to go to Jesus and pursue him to come heal his servant. This required great humility on this man's part. And watch, he doesn't feel like he even deserves Jesus to come to his house. This is the same attitude that the leper had. Also, as a Roman, he would have been raised to believe in the Roman gods. If you ever studied that in school, and you know that the Greek deities and the Roman deities were known as this, these far-off deities that didn't really care about mankind or humanity or interact with mankind on a real personal level. And so that's what this man has been raised under. Roman deities who don't care that much about humanity, and yet here is Jesus, the God-man, who is interacting with him in a real personal way, relating to him. It's just a powerful moment. Look down at verse 9. Watch what this man says. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. Now, what is he talking about when he says this? Well, he's saying that I'm a man who's under authority, but I also exercise authority. As you know, in the military, there are people, if you're a captain in the U.S. Army, you are in charge of the men under you. Whatever you say gets dispensed to those men, and they have to do it. But you're also a man under authority. You have people over you. And so this man is making this really profound connection because he recognizes that Jesus' words carry authority just like his own words do. It's a recognition that Jesus is God. He's saying, Jesus, your words carry authority. All you have to do is say the word and my servant will be healed. In this little exchange, we see this man has great faith, believing that Jesus Christ is truly God. And we see in this centurion the same attitude that the leper had, and this great faith. Someone that you would least likely to expect to have faith is someone that has faith. 
Do you recall back in Matthew 5, 3, at the beginning of this series, we talked about a really famous verse where it says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And that doesn't mean poor like poor people. That means someone who sees their need for God. So you're seeing Matthew 5, 3 now lived out. You're seeing people who recognize how much they need God come to Jesus with great faith, recognizing that he's God and that they need him to change things. Look at verse 10. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the, and to the centurion, Jesus said, go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. So everyone's having this warm moment. There's a healing. or about to be healing. This guy who doesn't even, shouldn't really even be talking to Jesus, talking to Jesus, pursuing Jesus. Everyone's having this warm moment. Roman centurion needs a servant healed, comes to Christ in humility, asks for healing, and Jesus heals the guy. But then Jesus completely ruins the moment by talking about hell. Why is he bringing up hell in the middle of this warm moment with this Roman centurion? What is he getting at when he says this? Well, you see, Jesus came to Israel to fulfill, as a fulfillment of prophecy, and they were expecting a Messiah, a political Messiah. And what happens when Jesus comes? Well, much of Israel doesn't believe, especially the religious elite leaders did not believe he was a Messiah because... He didn't come how they thought he would come. We see a pattern in the Bible, all over the Bible. Those that are least likely to believe end up believing, but those who have the most knowledge and the most revelation reject God. We see it all over the Old Testament. We see it in the New Testament, in the Gospels. The ones that have the most information, the most revelation, are the ones who reject him. And the ones who shouldn't even be talking to him, a leper and a centurion, are the ones that have this great faith. And I have seen the same thing play out with students for many, many years. I have seen so many students come through here where, man, their parents are on their knees praying for them. Their parents are teaching the Bible, teaching them the gospel, and showing them in action who Jesus is, and that student walks out and just goes, you know what? I, I want nothing to do with that. I don't want to see any of that. I don't want nothing to do with that. Then I've seen students, man, they've gone through some really, really tough things. They've had families in disarray. They've had suffering, just immense suffering, and yet that student is like, yeah, I want to follow Jesus and make him my Lord and Savior. And all I can say to that is, it's a mystery to me how that plays out and why it plays out like that. But don't ever take for granted because of the knowledge and information that you have 
that you're just a shoe in because if you don't respond in faith and repentance, no one is a shoe in No one is a Christian just because of how they're raised. So in this story, the centurion is the least likely to have faith. And Jesus uses that and says to the Jews that are, that are there, he says, God's going to judge the sin of Israel, their unbelief. Do you realize that no one talks more about hell in the Bible than Jesus? That's a disturbing thought, isn't it? Because most of us think of, you know, verses on hell being, no, Jesus is the one saying the verses on hell much of the time in the Bible. So we can't, you know, get with this idea that, you know, well, Jesus is gracious. That's New Testament God. Old Testament God, wrathful, angry at sin, judging sin. No, it's all God's truth. And Jesus talks more about hell than anybody else in the scriptures. And so while Jesus warns Israel for their unbelief and us as well, he also gives some great news. He says the gospel is going to go to the Gentiles and spread all over the world. Do you realize Jesus, just by inference, Jesus talked about you in this passage. The gospel is going to go to the Gentiles and people that are not Jews because Israel didn't believe God's going to go to the Gentiles. I want to show you this. I found this really interesting recently. We had a guy named Todd Aaron come about three weeks ago, and he's really gifted at talking about various world religions. And he showed us these four slides that I thought were astounding. And he said, here's this, I want to show you the spread of the four major religions of the world. And here's what they look like. You can barely see that, but those little green dots, this, each little green dot represents a people group, I think, of 10,000 Muslims. So it's a map of the world. And you see most of it's concentrated there in the middle. And that's called the 1040 window. Most mission groups will tell you this is the most unreached group in the world with the gospel. Whatever's in that little window there, we see all those green dots, is known as the 1040 window where most of the world's Muslims live. And we'd say generally it centers around where Islam began, which is right there on the Arabian Peninsula. Next we have, <clears throat> this is the world's Buddhist. Mostly in the eastern portion of Asia. And so you have mostly concentrated in one section of the world. Then we have the world's Hindus. This blew me away. Almost all in India, where it began. And then you look at a map that shows the same dynamic with all the world's Christians. Watch this. Each little dot represents 10,000 Christians, or at least those that claim to be. What do you notice about that? You notice that where Christianity began, right in the middle of where the, the eastern portion of the Mediterranean Sea, it has spread all over the world. Just by that fact alone, if you're someone that's a skeptic and you're here, the statement that Jesus made here where he says, the gospel's going to go to the ends of the earth, to the, from east to west, 
you're seeing that play out in history. Every other world religion that we see, we come across, the world's major religions are for the most part stuck right where they started. Christianity is the only one that has leaped continents. And we would now say, we don't even know where we would say the center of Christianity is because it's spread all over the world and has been so pervasive. I think that alone can show the veracity of the Christian faith. Because if, if, if the other faiths are true and they're real, then those gods haven't done a very good job of getting that faith to spread across the globe, have they? And yet the Christian faith has spread all over the globe. It's, been a, it's a miracle. There's no other faith that's spread in that way. And so what Jesus describes here is being fulfilled before our eyes. And I think it's just really in, encouraging and incredible to think of it in, in light of that. Look at verse 14. And when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand and the fever left her, and she rose and began to serve him. That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. Now this situation, so he goes to Peter's mother-in-law's house and heals her. We see three little situations happen here. There's a leper, the centurion, servant, and now Peter's mother-in-law. And there are many others that get healed as well. There's casting out demons, there's healing the sick. So the question is, why are these stories here? Well, the Bible tells us why. In verse 17, it says, they're to fulfill what's in Isaiah, that he took our illnesses and bore our diseases. So whether we like to admit it or not, our, there's a connection between our sin and our suffering. Now, I don't mean, when I say that, I do not mean that when you're in the hospital with someone and they're sick, you don't say to them, you know why you're in here? Let me tell you why. It's because of sin. Like, I'm not saying that you say that. That's not comforting. That's not the time and place to say that. But there is a connection between sin in general and sickness in general. Sometimes it can be specific. There are certain things we could do that might get us a disease. But I'm talking more generally here. General sin, we recognize that causes general suffering. And so when we look at the prophet Isaiah and what he says, he says he, that he took our illnesses and bore our diseases. There's a connection between suffering and sin. And so the larger point I think Jesus makes is the same authority that heals is the same authority that forgives sin. And that's the big idea, I think, here in this passage. So with these stories, I think we learn, I want to show you three ideas that we learn from these stories about authority and how we should relate to it. First thing is this. Our sin is always a defiance of God's authority. There's never a place where you and I sin that there's not some defiance of authority going on. It's always deeper than the external activity and rebellion. Secondly, a quote by D.A. Carson. He says, The authority of Jesus is a great comfort to the eyes of faith and a great terror to the merely religious. So just like this centurion, this leper, 
come to him with great faith because they have eyes that can see who he is. His authority is a great comfort to those guys, but a great terror to those who reject him, the merely religious. And then lastly, this is for us. I think you and I often want Jesus' authority to bring joy and happiness and healing, but we do not want his authority to bring judgment, repentance, and righteousness. And here's the reality. If you want Jesus in your life, we get to have him in all of his authority. We don't get to pray just for healing and pray just for our circumstances to improve externally, but we get all of him, which means, yeah, we get joy, we get happiness, we get healing, but we also get repentance and righteousness. And if we reject him, that means judgment. And so it's a profound thought to think about when you think of the authority of Jesus in that light. So I want you guys to go ahead and move into your discussion uh, for a few moments. So go ahead and have some discussion at your tables this morning.